Well, a moment ago, you sang, I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. That song is called, This I Believe. And it's a beautiful, powerful expression of what so many of us in this room truly, truly believe. We're presently in a study series that is all about believing, aren't we? If you're a regular part of our church family, you know that. Jesus, know him and what? Believe, a study of the gospel of John. Well, if you haven't been with us up to this moment, uh, we are presently in chapter 6 of John's gospel, which I would invite you to make your way to that place now, if you would, whether it you're carrying a, a, a Bible or maybe your phone or an iPad. Let's make our way there. There's a note page in your bulletin. I'll ask you to retrieve that. That'll be of some help along the way. Uh, there's Bibles in the back. If you need a Bible today, you just got out of the house without yours, we can certainly supply you with one. Raise your hand. We'll do that. And then if you could silence your cell phone. Right on cue. That was perfect. <laughs> That's why we do that, right? Thank you, thank you. Silence that phone. (laughs) That was perfect. All right. Well, if you've been with us in our study of John, you know that very near the end of his gospel, and this this should be starting to just really settle into your understanding of this particular book, he writes at the very end of his gospel why he writes the book at all. And here's what he says in John 20, verse 31. He says, These are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, most of you in this room really believe the things that you just sang about in that that song. And you really believe who Jesus is, God who put on flesh and and came into our world, and and you believe that he did what he said he would do when he came, and that is to live a sinless life, and and and, and so that he could die on a cross, and and die in our place, and pay a sin debt that we could never pay ourselves, so that we could stand before holy God, forgiven, and then he rose from the dead to prove that he had accomplished all of that. You believe these things, I know. We've been together a long time. I know that you believe these things. But not everyone who says they believe really believes. Something comes along that exposes that unbelief that is really present underneath the profession of belief. I remember hearing the true story of a student in a college speech class who delivered a speech to his class one day that he entitled The Law of the Pendulum. The class thought it would be kind of a uh, scientifically geared speech, but it would turn out to be a speech about believing, about faith. 
The student spent the first 15 minutes explaining the physical principles that govern a swinging pendulum, and he went into great lengths about uh, stressing how the pendulum can, can never return to a point higher than that from which it started. And so over time, because of friction and because of gravity, the arc of the pendulum becomes reduced and, and it gets smaller and smaller and, until it finally settles into its center place. And so to illustrate this, this student took a tennis ball to which he'd attached about a four-foot length of string and he tacked it to the top of the chalkboard at the front of the class and he swung the ball. The pendulum went back and forth, and every time it would reach one side, he would put a little mark on the chalkboard, and then it would swing back, and, and he would mark it again and, and again and again and again. And each time that the ball came back, it came back a little less far than the previous time. Well, he then turns to the class, and he asks, how many of you believe the law of the pendulum is true? And all the students and the professor as well acknowledged that they really believe this law. This law is true. And they thought the speech was over at that point, but it was not over. Prior to the class and at the very back of the classroom, this student had rigged up another pendulum, perfectly centered in the room, this one hanging from a steel truss in the top of the, the classroom. And to that truss, he had anchored a cable and on the end of the cable was a 120-pound metal dumbbell. Then he asked his professor to climb onto a table next to the wall on which he had placed a chair. He asked his professor if he would, would sit in the chair with his head firmly against the wall. And then once seated, the student asked his professor, Now, you really do believe in the law of the pendulum, right? Professor said, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe in the law of the pendulum. Okay. And then the student took this 120-pound iron pendulum and he pushed it all the way to the, its outward arc within one inch of the professor's nose. And he said, now, you really do believe, right? Yeah, I believe. Don't move, professor. So he lets the dumbbell go, and the arc, it, it arcs away across the room with a whoosh, reaches the other end of its arc, and it starts to make its way back. And as it does, the professor sees this 120-pound iron ball coming straight for his head. And what does he do? Well, he leaps off of the chair, he stumbles off of the table, and falls on the floor before it gets to his head. The classroom erupts in laughter. The professor himself even laughed. And then the student turns to his classmates and he asks this question. Now, does our professor really believe in the law of the pendulum? And the whole class said, no, no, he does not. Church family, there are people who say they believe in Jesus. You know those people. I know people like that. There are people who talk about Jesus. Maybe they talk about him a lot. They say they affirm his teachings. They will tell you that they pray to him. They say that they 
follow him. But when asked to climb into the chair, put their head against the wall, and really own that belief, that belief in Jesus, they're not prepared to go all the way and see it all the way through, not really willing to make Jesus the Lord of their life. You know people like this. There may be somebody in this room like that today. Well, this is precisely what Jesus encounters here in John chapter 6. And we have encountered all of this with Jesus a little bit as we have joined him over the last couple of weeks in this chapter, which we will bring to a close today, head into chapter 7, Lord willing, next time. Jesus, as you might remember, in the first part of this chapter, performs an extraordinary miracle. He feeds 15,000 people at the end of a day of teaching and he feeds them from a little boy's picnic basket no one goes hungry that day everybody goes home full well the next day captivated by this demonstration of jesus power over the physical world this crowd wants to make jesus their king they're prepared to make him their king by force if they need to because they believe in him They find him at the town meeting house, the the synagogue in Capernaum, and they say, feed us like you did yesterday, Jesus. Feed us like this all the time. We'll follow you. We believe in you. Well, Jesus cuts to the chase, verse 26 of chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, and he's talking to a, a large crowd, several thousand people, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I fed you. That's why you're following me. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? We believe in you, Jesus, but show us how we can make food like you make food. So where are their heads? Food. (laughs) Just, Just food. That's all that really matters in the moment. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you, what's the next word? You believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? We're hungry again. How about another meal miracle, Jesus? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you, present tense, right now, in this moment, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they're stuck in their focus on purely physical things and they want this bread that will eliminate their physical hunger they're not hearing jesus they don't make the connection that he's talking about himself and so jesus finally says so that they will not miss it verse 35 
I am the bread of life. I am that bread. Get that. I'm not talking about physical food anymore. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus is making this incredible offer, as you see there on your note page. You can just eat physical bread and live physically, but only for a time. Or you can have me. I'm offering you myself. I'll satisfy the fully the hunger of your soul, not for a day or a week, but forever. You say you believe in me, but it's not true. Verse 36. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not what? You don't believe. All the evidence needed for you to believe in me as the one God sent is right here in front of you, but you will not have it. You don't want me. You just want food through your stomach. Now, does this move Jesus then to withdraw his offer to be the bread of life? (laughs) No way, not at all. If anything, it moves him to press harder and to go deeper. Verse 37. You refuse to believe, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You can have real life. True life, spiritual life, eternal life, if you will make me what you hunger for the most. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? You didn't come down from heaven, Jesus. We know your mom and dad. We know you grew up in Nazareth. How can you say you're from heaven and that eternal life is found in you? How can you say that? And so the unbelief is now really beginning to mount. The pendulum has come too close and the people are starting to duck out of the way. Verse 43, Then Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It was written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And we say amen. Amen. I am the bread of life, he says once again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This, and he's pointing to himself, no doubt. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What an incredible offer from Jesus. 
No less than seven times in these verses, Jesus offers himself as that which will satisfy the, the, the deepest longing of the human heart, which is to know that you're in a right relationship with the God who made you. To know that you have life, not temporary life, but eternal life through faith, through believing in Jesus as your life-giving bread. There's nothing more important that you can know or believe than this. Jesus is the bread that gives life. Well, then Jesus says in verse 51, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is what? What is it? My flesh. My flesh, he says. Here, Jesus makes an indirect reference to the cross, doesn't he? To his cross, which he knows is is not very far away. Now, this is not the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has hinted as, as to what is coming for him. He knows he came into the world to die on a cross. And so he's hinting about that here in verse 51. But if you were here when we were working through chapter 3, you might remember in verse 14 that Jesus says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be what? Lifted up on a cross that whoever believes, ah, there's our word, believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus was saying the same thing in chapter 3 as he now says here in verse 51, telling us that the bread he offers is his own body, which he will offer to God on a cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin and my sin. Well, even though it is only a veiled reference to the cross, it sets the crowd off even more. Verse 52 The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, this this large crowd is even now more amped up, more upset. They have not been able to break out of this, this stuck thinking. They're still fixating on physical issues, on physical food, still focused on, on, on that. And Jesus, as their free meal ticket, give us food to eat. When Jesus says, the bread that I will give you for life is my flesh, then they say, how can this man give us his body and satisfy our physical hunger? They disputed. And Jesus is going to do nothing to quell this dispute. In fact, he throws gasoline on the flames in the verses that come after this. Check out verse 53. Jesus is about to say something that really rocks their world. So Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, or I guarantee you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you, no spiritual life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you think that helped the crowd? (laughs) No, it didn't. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He's not promoting cannibalism, right? He's really saying, believe in me. 
He said that no less than seven times already. Believe in me. When he says, feed on my body and my blood, he's saying, believe in me. I am going to give my life for your life. If you want eternal life with God, you must feast on me by faith. You must believe in me, look to me, take me in to your life spiritually like like you take food into your body physically. Take me into your life spiritually. All of me. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Isn't that what Jesus said back in verse 27? Don't work for the food that perishes. And here, Jesus essentially says exactly that. Verse 55, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. It doesn't perish. It's eternal. The food and drink you ordinarily take into your body physically, well, that's not going to give you true life. Not real life. Not the life that I offer you. I'm the only kind of food and drink that gives eternal life. Verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my, drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. In other words, we have union with Jesus through faith, through believing in him, only him. So this eating and drinking of Jesus as he's speaking of it here is the way we are spiritually united to him so that his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection count for us. We have eternal life when we feed on and believe in Jesus. Verse 57 As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And then, this, pointing again to himself, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate in the wilderness and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, on me, will live forever. There's no eternal life except in union with Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. Believe in me. Trust me. Receive me. Get your nourishment from me. Get life from me. As one of the ancient church fathers wrote back in about 385 A.D., believe in Jesus and you have eaten. Believe in Jesus and you have eaten. Have you eaten? Have you? Are you satisfied? With the food from heaven? The bread of life? You know, church family, for you and me, 20 centuries removed from this day in Capernaum, with the completed word of God to hold in our hands, we get it. We get it. We believe in Jesus And we have eaten. But it wasn't so clear for the crowd on this day. If you flip your note page over, what Jesus says, especially here in verses 53 to 58, man, that was a great offense to them. This was truly offensive talk to the crowd. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they say, They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
Who can listen to this? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. That was incredibly offensive language, especially to uh, several thousand Jewish men and women who they knew the Mosaic law prohibited them from eating flesh with blood in it, let alone drinking blood. Jesus was speaking metaphorically, but because this crowd is so grounded in physical realities in their life, they are offended. We can't listen to you anymore. This is crazy talk. By the way, just so you're not confused, don't let that term disciples throw you off there in verse 60. This word can refer to anyone who simply attaches themselves to a teacher as a follower without implying anything about sincerity of heart or, or depth of devotion or commitment. You're just a follower of someone. That makes you a disciple. So this large crowd of disciples are superficially attracted to Jesus by the miracles that they have seen, the meal that they ate yesterday, the prospect maybe of more meals coming from him today and tomorrow and the next day, the hope that maybe if they make him their king, then he'll deliver them from the Romans who are oppressing them. In many ways, these disciples are really fair-weather followers. They're, 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 they're thrill-seekers. They're, they're not truth-seekers. By demanding that he be acknowledged as the bread of life come down from heaven and insisting that eternal life is found only through fully committing to him your life through faith, through believing, Jesus was asking for more than this crowd was prepared to give. And so consequently, they're going to choose in just a moment to turn their backs on Jesus and really turn their backs on salvation. Unable to swallow Jesus' teaching any longer, these disciples, when they hear his words, they say, we can't listen to you anymore. This is crazy talk. We're done. Verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at what I've just said at this? Do you take offense? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What would you do then if you saw that? Now, this is an interesting question. And more than likely... It's another veiled reference to Jesus and the cross. There are many really fine Bible scholars who are much brighter and sharper than I who believe that Jesus is talking once again about his death on the cross, which he alluded to in verse 51. They think that, that the death of Jesus on the cross, which then leads to his resurrection, which then leads to his ascension, is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the cross. And Jesus is saying, you know, if you casual fair-weather followers are so greatly offended merely by my teaching you that, that I must be the life bread that you eat, how much more will you be scandalized if you see me hanging on a cross? That's the idea. The Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ, how? Crucified. We talk about a crucified Christ. We talk about him here that way, don't we? 
We have a cross here behind me to remind us that our salvation comes through the death of Jesus on the cross and then his resurrection and his ascension. So Paul says, we preach Christ crucified and and that is a stumbling block to Jews, isn't it? And folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach a crucified Christ. If you can't accept my words, how will you accept my cross? That's really what Jesus is asking. And it surely saddened him, the reaction of the crowd. It saddened him, but it it didn't surprise him. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many say, I've had enough, Jesus. I've had enough. I'm out of here. I'm done. Jesus is not surprised by the reaction of this large crowd of sensation seekers. And the reason he's not surprised is because he knows how true salvation works in any sinner's life. And he actually speaks about that in these verses. Here Jesus says the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit work together to bring salvation to one who is dead, spiritually dead in transgression and sin, one separated from God because of sin. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together to bring life. And here's what he says. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. What Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit takes the words of Jesus. We call that the gospel. The gospel of who Jesus is in God in a human body. What has he done? Died for sinners on a cross to pay their sin debt for them. Rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit takes that gospel truth and he supernaturally breathes spiritual life into that sin dead soul. That's the work of the Spirit. The sinner in themselves can't make that happen. The flesh is of no help at all, Jesus says. By the Spirit, through the gospel, salvation comes. That's how it came into your life. That's how it comes into my life. And then Jesus adds, and all of this is the work of the Father who lavishes his sovereign grace on a sinner as he wills. Verse 65, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless he's granted to come by the Father. This is God's will. This is his work. When you come to Jesus, the Father willed you to come. He wanted you. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work as one to bring you and me to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And these salvation truths are are just incredible, way more than we can unpack in this moment. But they so overwhelm the Apostle Paul that he restates what Jesus says in another place, in the book of Titus, chapter 3, 
verses 4 through 7. Check this out with me. Take a look on the screen. This is amazing. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own what? His own mercy. God was moved to show mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, being pronounced not guilty in the court of heaven by the grace of God alone, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Man, what a passage. By the Holy Spirit, through the redeeming work of the Son and the granting will of the Father, salvation comes to you and to me. And we glory in this truth, don't we, Christian? That it's all of God, it's not of me. We rejoice in this salvation grace. But clearly not everybody does. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, to distinguish them from all of these sensation seekers. Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh man, talk about two incredibly Beautiful, wonderful, powerful verses. As on so many other occasions, it is Peter who really speaks for all the other disciples, the the twelve. Jesus says, do you want to leave me too? Everybody else by the thousands are leaving me. Do you want to leave? Are, Are you going to go too? Lord. Lord, to to whom to whom shall we go where can we go and in that simple question really peter is saying jesus you know we we've we've considered it we've we've allowed ourselves to ponder what it might look like if we turn away from you but wherever we look for another lord or another master, or another way, or another philosophy, or another view of God, or another sense of meaning, or another sense of purpose in our life, or another another way of salvation. Every other place that we look in our lives and in this world, it, it, it all falls short. It all comes up empty. We can't walk away from you. There's nowhere else to go. And for us, brothers and sisters, what keeps us from going to the myriad of other alternatives to Jesus that are out there in our culture and in our world? What keeps us from going to any one of those other places? Is it not the same thing that kept Peter and those other disciples, those close followers next to him? Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. You are life. 
you know what? Life can really be hard as a Christian. It's a fallen, sinful world. We know hurts. We know disappointments. We experience losses. We have problems like everybody else has problems. And and yes, Jesus may confuse us at times and, and baffle us with some of the things that he says and, and maybe even provoke, provoke us and cause us to grumble now and then. And yes, much sooner than probably we might imagine, following Jesus and affirming his lordship in our lives and his saving work in our lives is, is going to cost us something as our culture grows more and more hostile to Christianity. It's going to cost us. Yes, it's, all of those things are true. And yet we say with Peter, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. No one ever spoke like you. No one ever acted like you. No one was ever so strong and yet so meek, so tough and yet so tender, so authoritative and yet so so gentle, so deep and yet so simple, just so just and yet so willing to be treated unjustly, so worthy of honor and so dishonored, so able to answer every question and yet so willing to remain silent as he suffered so full of life, yet so willing to die, so capable of coming down off of that cross in flaming judgment, and yet so committed not to come down and use his power because he wants to save sinners. Lord, where shall we go? Where shall we go? You have eternal life. Do you you believe that this morning? I mean, do you really believe that? There's nowhere else to go. It's Jesus. Do you believe that? Peter's words in verse 69 express two defining marks of a real disciple of Jesus. Faith and faithfulness. You have the words of eternal life and we have believed. That's the faith. And we have come to know. There's the faithfulness that you are the Holy One of God. Those are two distinguishing marks of every true follower of Jesus, faith in Him and faithfulness to Him. The verbs translated have believed and have come to know, those are in the perfect tense, which means that they are acts that were completed in the past, but they had this ongoing result. You believed Jesus in the past, but you are faithful to Him all the way through to the very end. Those are the true marks of a disciple. Well, the initial faith of true disciples results in this continued commitment, and we see that here. Unlike the false disciples who had made a final decision to abandon Jesus, the 12 don't do that. The exception being, of course, Judas. And this way, John shows the defining difference between those who are fickle followers and those who are true followers faith and faithfulness may that be you may that be me people of faith who are faithful yes well john closes out this sixth chapter on the heels of peter's wonderful faith affirmation by saying this verses 70 and 71 did i not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for 
he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now, church family, it might seem here at first read like a rather odd way for John to end this amazing, this amazing talk that Jesus has given. And yet it's really the perfect way to bring this to a close. The unbelief in this chapter is pervasive. You cannot miss it if you just read the chapter. And it only gets worse the farther you go, right? More and more unbelief until final abandonment. Thousands of people in this chapter are unwilling to believe in Jesus. Just about everybody who ate the, the miracle loaves and the, and, the, and the fish, they're done by the end of the chapter. Most of the disciples who've been tagging along because they liked the amazing miracles that Jesus was doing, they say, we're, we're out of here. We're, we're finished with you. And so now here at the end, there's just a small little remnant of true followers, devoted disciples. And so the most natural question to ask is, is Jesus losing? I mean, it looks like he's losing. He's going backwards. He's, he's not gaining followers. They're, they're quitting on him, not by the tens or the hundreds, but by the, the thousands. Is, is Satan winning? The devil, the slanderer, the accuser, the liar, the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers, is he winning? I mean, it looks like he's winning. But the loud and resounding answer to that question is what? No. No and no. He is not winning. Jesus declares that he is sovereign. He's in control, not only choosing the 12, but even choosing the betrayer to be in their midst. Do you see this? Judas is rebellious. He's greedy. He's selfish. He's self-serving. He's an unbeliever. And he's going to stand before God accountable for all of his actions of betrayal, which are yet to come. But he is here. And he is known to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, yes, there is a devil in our ranks, but I put him here. I did that. I chose him. No one's going to secretly plot to take my life from me. I will lay it down. Judas is not in charge. I'm in charge. And that's how John chooses to close this chapter. By reminding us, Jesus is in charge. So, brothers and sisters, as we would wrap up this chapter, let's, let's see in Jesus' words here a sanctuary for our souls when all hell breaks loose in our life and we feel like everything is out of control and our faith is flagging and it looks like Satan is winning. Let's go to a place like this. And instead of seeing only problems or loss or setback, let's see Jesus because he is in control. He's in charge. Amen and amen. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. And we say, amen and amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit and Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for John chapter 6. It's, 
It's taken us a few weeks to work our way through, but you have been so faithful to us. Holy Spirit, you have taken your word and you have, you have brought it to, to life for us figuratively and in the person of Jesus, who is the bread of life. Thank you for letting us see Jesus, to know him better today than we did a few weeks ago because we've spent time here. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us in this amazing way through the, the picture of the bread, you being the bread of life. And feasting on you through faith. And having as a, as a result of that life forever with you. Oh, how we thank you for coming. Putting on flesh. Living in our world. Dying our death so that we could have your life. To whom can we go but you? You alone are life. And yet, Lord, here we are. We, we live in a little town where the vast majority of those around us do not believe what we believe. They do not know Jesus the way we know Jesus. And so here before us lies a great opportunity and a challenge to take the bread of life out of this room and into a community that doesn't have Jesus yet. For that to happen, we're going to need you to fill us with your spirit, give us boldness, courage, the right words to say, ears that are attentive and eyes that are alert to see the need and to see the opportunity. We pray that you would enable us to take what we have here and share it with someone who does not yet know Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, bread of life. To whom can we go but to you? And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together and sing a closing.